Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Watching the events of the violent coup attempt in Washington was really hard for all of us. But it was probably even harder for immigrants who left the countries of their birth fleeing oppressive regimes. Many of them came to America because this was supposed to be a place with a strong democracy that wouldn't easily fall into autocracy. This is a country of free and fair elections that result in peaceful transitions of power. It has for more than 240 years. But at least for a few hours, what was flashing before our eyes on television was more like what we see in failed states that many immigrants left behind to become Americans. Later in the hour, we're going to hear from journalist Ali Harb, a Lebanese immigrant who was at the U.S. Capitol last week covering the insurrection for the Middle East eye. But first, we're going to hear from Detroit Free Press restaurant critic Mark Kurlianchik, who wrote an op-ed recently titled, My Family Fled the Soviet Union 30 Years Ago to Avoid Days Like January 6th. Mark Kurlianchik, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Always a pleasure, despite the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really curious about your parents' decision to come to the United States from the Soviet Union 30 years ago. Tell us about how that happened. Yeah, so, you know, my everything I've, I know about it, you know, comes 30 years later or has been told to me by my parents and has kind of been handed down. And the best that I can kind of piece it together is, you know, my, my dad sort of saw, you know, at the time, this is the late 80s, um, perestroika was was basically just, uh, you know, it, it was causing um, all kinds of turmoil. Um, the country, uh, the Soviet Union was sort of opening itself up to new information for the first time. Um, and I think that that was the first time in, in my parents' lives that they had realized that, hey, maybe, you know, maybe all this propaganda we've been fed is, is in fact propaganda and that there is, uh, you know, the, the, the evil America actually does have um, some opportunity for us. And, mm. you know, at the time you couldn't, you couldn't buy most groceries. You had to know people. Um, you know, it was, it was really all about this collective sense of, um, you know, keeping each other surviving while the government is failing you, essentially. Um, you know, the government had centralized control of, you know, essentially everything. So I, I remember, um, you know, tasting a banana as a, as a, as a small child, uh, and my parents had waited in line for, you know, I'm talking six hours for a banana. Um, mm. So, so they saw the writing on the wall, saw that 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 there was turmoil coming. We lived in Lithuania; um, it was Soviet-controlled Lithuania at the time, and uh, so Lithuania had actually declared its independence from the Soviet Union, along with the other Baltic states, before um, you know before some of the events that happened in Moscow. Right. Uh, and so we were able to secure exit visas because my father uh, has Jewish ancestry, and uh, we left literally just a couple months before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, the, the hope that your parents had when they, when they came here, obviously, was about freedom uh, on some level, uh, freedom to, to, to be more uh, of what they wanted to be. Talk about what that, that outlook was when they, when they got here. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was it was culture shock um, for them because my my mother actually tells me the story of um, the first grocery store that she entered. We actually, you know, the the, the immigration route to America took a few months. We went through Austria uh, and Italy, um, like many Jewish Soviet refugees at the time, because Italy was allowing people to come without any exit visas. So we basically were waiting in Italy. Um, to find out whether we were accepted into the U.S. or Israel. And uh, she said she, you know, in Austria, she entered the first grocery store and had and fell to her knees and just, you know, started bawling and had to be put on um, anti-anxiety medication because she had realized the depth of the lie um, that she had been sold her entire life. And so I think, you know, f- first is that shock. Um, and then there is the relief that, oh, we, you know, we probably did make the right choice for our family and our children, despite saying goodbye to, you know, when, when they left, um, you know, Soviet Lithuania in 1989, they literally said goodbye to their family, thinking it may be for the very last time. Um, and so, you know, leaving leaving the country and seeing the abundance that was outside of the Soviet bloc, um, I think, was was a, was, a, was the first sign of hope. You know, you, you, we left for uh, economic opportunity for sure, but also freedom and and stability. Mm-hmm. So. I'm then very curious about the range of emotions that you and your parents felt as you watched this insurrection unfold at the U.S. Capitol, people storming the doors, uh, attacking police officers, uh, waving the Confederate flag, the the, the flag of of infidels in in the Capitol Rotunda. What, What was that like? Yeah, you know, the way that I described it was it, it was like the sinking sense of deja vu. I mean, obviously, it's not a it's not a direct analogy, um, you know, where you have, uh, you know, a, a military coup in 1991 by the Soviets trying to basically undo the end of, of the Soviet Union. And so, you know, th- there is sort of a parallel to the, these anti-democratic forces that are trying to undo the will of the people. Um, you know, in in our case, it's uh, you, you know, some insurrectionists that are essentially trying to overturn a free and fair election. So, so there were these sort of, it was this sense of deja vu that literally we had, we had fled uh, one regime, um, you know, for the, for the hope of uh, and promise of freedom and stability in another, uh, only to be faced with the same sort of destabilizing images, you know, Im- images that we see that, that we, that we sort of link to states that are failing. And, you know, Sometimes moments like this lead to to more, uh, you know, more freedom and more democracy, but it's very rare. Typically, when there are situations like this, when a country, uh, you you know, when it can get to a point of this nature where there is a failed coup, uh, there are still years of destability that follow. Um, And so now as a father to, you know, to to boys who are the same age as I was um, when my parents made that horrible decision to to leave everything behind, it it just had this, you know, I just felt an intense feeling of disappointment um, and shame almost for my parents, you know, that they had they had literally upended their lives, Mm. uh, you know, restarted from scratch. Um, only to be faced with a situation that that mirrors, um, you know, at least some of the elements that that we faced thirty some years ago. The, um, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that's difficult for Americans, some Americans at least, is to understand the fragility of the system we have, and and you could almost see in the 
in the faces and the eyes of the people, some of the people who were doing what they were doing last week, that that they didn't quite understand the gravity of the the, the attack that they had launched on democracy. I, I think a lot of Americans think we, we couldn't lose the system we have. I think a lot of Americans think we could never live under uh, a regime like those we castigate around uh, the globe as, as insufficient. Uh, and, and I think that's a difference between uh, people who are born here and don't know anything different and people who come from other places where it, it, it gets made manifest uh, yeah. pretty frequently that, that this is not uh, impermeable to change. This doesn't have to be the way it is. It could very easily slip to something else. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. I mean, our our democracy has always been fragile, um, and you know this isn't the first time that that we've come close to losing it in in our in our short history. Um, yeah, I mean, I think having this sort of concept of a history of of another country of the Soviet Union, which has this really terrible uh, history in the twentieth century, and then being able to to you know. Uh, studying that history and then drawing parallels from it. You know, I, I think that in America, we've been sold uh, the myth of American exceptionalism, um, you know, which, which has had, I, I think, in, in, you know, it, it goes both ways. I think American exceptionalism has inspired, um, you know, a, a number of great things and, 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 and people to do um, amazing things with all this country offers us. But American exceptionalism also, um, you know, it prevents us from, from looking at ourselves you know, there, um, the the other essay that I think was, was sort of uh, essential to read um, was uh, Dr. Kendi's essay in The Atlantic about the American sense of denial, about these these sorts of uh, undercurrents have been a part of American history from the beginning. Um, and, and I think that that maybe, you know, what we saw on January 1st uh, has clearly exposed that to you know, to every American who is watching, regardless of of what country they're from and what their background is, if you weren't shocked by the events of January 6th, and if you feel like this country, uh, you know, is stable, uh, or you still are, are feeling exceptional about it, you know, I would urge you to look uh, at that myth and, and start to kind of reckon with the reality, because until we do, uh, we'll just continue to repeat this cycle. Hmm. I'm talking with Mark Kurlianchik. He is the Detroit Free Press restaurant critic, wrote an op-ed in the Free Press titled, My Family Fled the Soviet Union 30 Years Ago to Avoid Days Like January 6th. We're talking about what happened on January 6th in the nation's capital at the Capitol building uh, when thousands of Donald Trump supporters uh, and uh, white supremacists decided that they were going to attack the seat of democracy as a way of trying to stop certification uh, of last November's election in which Donald Trump lost. Uh, we're talking about how that looked, how that felt for families who came to this country from countries where acts like that are more common, where attacks on democracy are something that you have to think about and account for uh, in, in, in real time. Uh, Mark, I, I want to talk with uh, you about uh, people you talked with. Uh, you, you spoke with some other immigrants from the Soviet Union, local TV and film producer 
uh, Jenny Fedorovich, who told you for the first time she didn't feel proud to be an American. Uh, what does it yeah. mean for someone who gave up so much to come to America to, to, to say something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the the ultimate disappointment in in a place that that you know that you thought um, you know was going to deliver better. You know, I, I think you know maybe an analogy that, that that would resonate is it's like you know leaving an abusive relationship um, for the promise of, of of someone who you know will will um, sort of undo that damage only for it to be inflicted only for that, you know, that, that new spouse or that new partner to inflict that same type of abuse. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's demoralizing. There's no other way of, of putting it. Um, yeah. And you know, the, the irony is, is that so many uh, Soviet immigrants do uh, support Trump and, and are uh, conservative in their policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole, that's a thing for a whole other segment um, but, uh, but there, you know, I think what it speaks to is the fact that, um, you know, strongman authoritarian regimes, uh, they don't lose their, uh, they don't lose their charm for a certain subset of, of humanity. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you, uh, I'm curious about what was being communicated to people back in Russia yeah during the, the 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 coup attempt here i'm really i i'm curious about lots of countries of course uh but but i can remember in um i can remember in 1991 um being a intern at the free press uh mm-hmm. during the summer and and watching on television from the newsroom uh, what was going on in the Soviet Union, the 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 the, the coup there, and how that un, unfolded, and how I felt uh, as a man, as an American watching uh, people in another country stand up and demand demand that they could have a democracy like ours. I, I thought a lot on January sixth about how. People in other countries were watching us. People in other countries where they have mm. tried to do that were were watching what what we were doing. Yeah, I mean, we we flipped from ABC and NBC at my parents' house on on January sixth to uh, later in the day to Russia uh, Russia Today um, and Russian TV. Actually, it was a Pervy Kanal, which is Channel One, um, and they had a uh, they had a, a like a, a, a documentary style, you know, like a primetime docu- mini documentary style piece ready to go. Um, that I was I was you know, it was really disappointing to watch because they you know essentially it was the entire um, the, the narrative that I think uh, you know I, I, I'm not inside Putin's brain. I don't know what what his goals are in interfering with the American election, but I have to feel like. Um, you know that that January sixth played directly into the type of narrative that he would have loved to see out of out of everything that happened, hmm. and uh, and that was evident on the way that Russian TV was covering it, calling um, the events that we were seeing uh, sort of the inevitable revolution that was coming to America, um, you know, and uh, it went back into uh, the summer and the Black Lives Matter movement, and just really hammered home this divided to America's. Um, you know, basically painting a picture that America was crumbling and at war with itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also write in your op-ed that this is exactly what Vladimir Putin wanted when he set out to interfere in our elections in 2016. 
you can debate the level of coordination between the Trump circle and Russia, you write, but by now it barely matters. Either way, yeah. Putin won. That's that's such a disappointing sentence to read that, that we fell right into uh, the trap that he set. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I guess that's the one thing that 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 Russians have have always um, excelled at is propaganda and and manipulation of information. You know, and w- when you talked earlier about you know somebody who um, maybe has seen these things before, seeing it applied in America, um, yeah, has just been it's 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 the, the it, it's really disappointing to to know that you know I, I, we we fled this place that would have. Um, you know, would have been under the long arm of Putin, and yet his his long arm extends all the way here. Uh, it seems, you know, and, and what the damage will be, I think, we you know we have yet to see. Uh, th- this could have been, you know, an overreach, and this may be the thing that we need to to finally purge some of these elements, um, you know, from our from our American politics. But uh, it's still just disappointing to know that that at the end of the day, you know, Putin is smiling. Uh, huh. After January sixth, yeah, I mean, uh, there there are people who doubt the intent or effectiveness of Soviet, you know, interference in in our in our politics. Uh, I mean, besides the instant example, though, um, I mean, as somebody who is originally from there, I mean, talk a little about how serious. That is, and how determined uh, Putin in particular is to disrupt uh, democracy in, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think you can just it, – it, the, the Soviet Union never really fell. It just sort of changed into this uh, oligarchical hyper-capitalism that Putin is the uh, in charge of. Um, and, and, you know, the, the troubling thing is that the style of strongman authoritarianism, which is, you know, under the guise of democracy, you know, Putin still wins uh, every every election in landslide victories. Um, but, you know, the, the depth of control of information there, I mean, it really hasn't changed much from the Soviet era other than there are there's now a class of people, um, you know, who swap their party uniforms for uh, oil and gas prices. I mean, it's hmm. It's, uh, you know, Putin is is out to basically after the fall of the Soviet Union, I think that there was a collective um, desire to reestablish uh, Russia as a superpower. Obviously, you, you know, you never want a country that that is that is failing. I mean, we, we see that now in America. We don't want to accept the fact that that our country is coming very close to failing as a democracy. Mm. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think that Russia is really trying to reassert itself as a superpower. And America is its number one, uh, number one foe in that and has been. I mean, this is going back to the Cold War. It's it's still the same elements, just the, 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 the rules of engagement have changed. Instead of tanks being sent, you know, down the down the Red Square in Moscow, we have, uh, you know, a huge disinformation campaign trolls, fake accounts, um, all kinds of this sort of informational warfare that's been going on uh, that, that, you know, we just, the, the, that one side of American politics has uh, failed to really, uh, rec- to, failed to uh, interrogate in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mark Kurlianchik, a Detroit Free Press restaurant critic and also immigrant from uh, Russia. Really great to have you here to talk about uh, your your perspective on what happened at our capital. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me, Stephen. Yeah.
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk with Ali Harb, uh, a writer and reporter for Middle East Eye, who covered the violent pro-Trump mob at the Capitol. Uh, stay with us for more Trade Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about how people who came to this country for its freedom, for its democracy, have reacted, are reacting to the coup attempt that we saw in Washington at our Capitol building on January 6th. We just heard from Mark Kurlianchik, who is the Detroit Free Press restaurant critic, uh, an immigrant from Lithuania and Russia, uh, about how he and his parents took in all of the things that happened. I want to welcome another voice to the conversation now. Ali Harb is a writer and reporter for the Middle East Eye, which is based in Washington, D.C., and he was one of the journalists who was covering the violent white supremacist pro-Trump mob at the Capitol on January 6th. Ali Harb, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Yeah. So uh, let's start with your experiences covering this MAGA riot. Uh, Put us there uh, on January 6th as this took shape. So started out today, uh, and I thought, the protest or the rally was going to happen at Freedom Plaza, which is near the White House. I live in Capitol Hill. So I headed to the site of the White House thinking that's that's where the action is going to be. To my surprise, everyone was heading towards the Capitol. And I actually saw Alex Jones leading a crowd of angry people and, and shouting slogans about a revolution. So I marched along talking to people, making observations. Um, and unfortunately, when you're, when you're in the middle of a big crowd, sometimes you don't get cell phone service. So I was largely oblivious to what was happening inside the Capitol. Uh, but as I got deeper, I knew that there was a serious situation. Uh, I started hearing pops, which could have been either gunshots or uh Tear gas, tear, tear gas canisters, uh, and then you know started seeing tear gas, uh, started seeing uh, protesters or rioters, shall, shall I call them, in tactical gear, an increasing number of them, uh, people in in bulletproof vests with walkie-talkies, with pepper spray, with batons. I didn't see any gun, but that military look was prevalent. And, and the closer you got, I got the capital, uh, the more crowded it became, the more frantic, the more chaotic, a lot of screaming, people saying, push forward. And I knew that the capital had been breached. Uh, as I saw people walking out of the capital after being tear gassed and saying that, uh, you know, the lawmakers had evacuated, uh, I witnessed a lot of anger, a lot of calls uh, for for hanging politicians. Uh, I witnessed Republican politicians uh, like 
Vice President Pence and, and Senate Majority, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell being called traitors. It was utter chaos. And honestly, it wasn't until after I stepped away from the crowd. Actually, it was so crowded that I had to sort of push and shove my way out that I realized uh, the full picture and the severity of what was happening. Mm. So one of the images that's burned into all of our minds is one of a rioter carrying a Confederate flag around the Capitol in the in the rotunda in particular is where his picture is snapped. Um, you actually talked to that man outside I the Capitol that day. I that man. Uh, his uh, name is again, Kevin. Talk about that interaction. Yeah, again, when I spoke to that man, I had no idea that he had just come out of the rotunda uh, because I spoke to him later in the afternoon, which gave me the benefit of a sort of chill conversation, for lack of a better term. Uh, I spotted the Confederate, Confederate flag uh, at this point. We're on the east end of the Capitol, uh, where the action was not as intense. Uh, so I, I approached him and I said, hello, can I speak to you? I'm a journalist. Uh, why are you bringing this flag, which represents the Confederacy, to the nation's capital? And, and he insisted that the flag represents America, and uh, Washington is, a, is, is part of America, so the flag belongs there. And clearly aware that I'm a person of color, uh, he pushed back against the insinuation that the flag represents hate. Uh, I quote, he said, uh, if you don't like somebody, you don't like somebody. A flag ain't got nothing to do with it. Uh, and then he proceeds to tell me, I don't like you. <laughs> uh, it was it was a nervy conversation because this is a person who's holding a symbol of racism. And I try to stay out of the picture as much as I can, especially when I interview people of extreme political beliefs. I try to nod. I try not to engage them, not to... Uh, uh, not to come off as hostile, just to let them have their say, because that's that's my objective is as a journalist is to get information from people. Mm. Uh, but it was one of those moments where I couldn't stay out of the picture, where I felt involved uh, as a person of color in in this symbol of hate being held up in front of me. And it wasn't until the next day that I saw his pictures in the Capitol. I'm like, wow, that's Kevin. He identified himself by his first name only to me, Kevin, which that it's not necessarily his real name. Hmm. So so um, did you ever feel like you were in danger? I mean, you, you say that this person said to you, I don't I don't think I like you. Uh, and this is in the middle of a mob that is, you know, perpetrating violence, uh, both against property and, and and people. Did you worry that they might turn on you? In the moment, I did not. Uh, and and my loving wife tells me I'm silly or naive for thinking that. And in hindsight, and, and thinking and seeing uh, an AP journalist who was attacked, seeing the AP crew having their equipment attacked, uh, in hindsight, I, I think I was in a very dangerous situation. It's just in the moment, I'm getting on with it and doing my job, and I approach people very amicably, uh, and I always try to not be hostile or confrontational with anyone I'm interviewing. Uh, so believe it or not, at, at, at the Capitol riot, much like 
previous MAGA rallies that I've covered, uh, I usually have sort of amicable conversations just because that's that's my attitude. It's not to it's it's not to antagonize my fellow Americans and and think of them as bad per se. But thinking back of pushing through the crowd of the screaming of the tear gas of fellow journalists being attacked being attacked i was definitely in a dangerous situation mm. i just did not realize that in that moment so so i i wonder if you felt more vulnerable there because you were a journalist or if you felt more vulnerable because you're an arab american man i mean uh, both were targets, in mm-hmm. some ways, of, of this crowd. Which which do you feel that the crowd was more likely to react to? I, I think it's definitely the former. It's it's definitely there was an outwardly and unabashed and unapologetic hostility towards journalists and and media professionals. Mm. Uh, and and I think I was spared some of that. Uh, being, you know, working for a London-based website called Middle East Eye, that's not as as well known to them as, you know, a quote-unquote fake news source. Whereas, you know, thinking somebody from CNN would have had it really badly. But certainly, I, I was approached by a woman actually when I was leaving who said, "You're a journalist. You're a part of you're part of fake news." And I, you know, tried to diffuse the tension and end up actually interviewing her and getting some some quotes from her. Uh, But there was such a hostility against journalists. Of course, the second element does come into play. uh, So so it's it's just like a bit more fuel to the fire if if it were to catch on. But fortunately, I must say, other than than, than those couple of comments, largely I was spared the anger of the crowd, but the anger was terrifying like just just looking back at it playing back some of the videos replaying some of the interviews some of the back background noise people screaming for revolution uh deranged individuals just pontificating on the sidelines screaming and and people coming out of the capital saying you know the 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 lawmakers of the republic are evacuating because they're security cat expletives it, it was utter chaos. It, I mean, in that moment, I just didn't know how bad it was. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Ali Harb. He's a writer and reporter for the Middle East Eye, which is based in Washington, D.C. He was one of the journalists who was covering the violent white supremacist pro-Trump mob at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, you also wrote about the Iranians for Trump contingent in the crowd mm-hmm. that day. I, I'm, I'm really eager to um, I'm really eager to hear about that be, because I think one of the mistakes that people make when they think about uh, the people who did this in in uh, Washington on January 6th and when they think about the election in November <clears throat> is they th- they think that because there is a white supremacist motive behind all of this, and there definitely is, uh, that it's just white people who are, who, are, who are participating. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, there are people of other uh, ethnic identities who are, who are caught up in this as well. Tell me more about Iranians for Trump. 
So I, I saw those flags. They were basically the monarchy flag is is the pre-Islamic revolution uh, flag, which has has a red lion in the middle of it instead of instead of the name of God, which occupies the current contemporary Iranian flag. And I, you know, pushed through the crowd to to speak to to some of those individuals. Uh, I could understand why some staunch anti-Iranian regime people would uh, would like Trump because of his anti-regime policies, his maximum pressure campaign. Even though there is there is a case to be made that the maximum pressure campaign failed failed in weakening the Iranian government and only weakened the Iranian economy and hurt the Iranian people. But you know, away from policy, what I was astounded to hear is that. One of the individuals I interviewed who was in the Iranians for Trump crew uh, was repeating conspiracy theories about election fraud and about liberals wanting to destroy America. And and this lesson I learned also from covering the Arab American community in Michigan during the election and speaking to some individuals who are Trump supporters, people in all communities are not immune to this conspiratorial thinking. Uh, you could easily go down the rabbit hole on the internet. And if you're an individual who is susceptible to conspiracy theories, it, it, it makes sense that you adopt some of these conspiracy theories. Uh, that, you know, there was election fraud, that people voted, you know, quote unquote, I would never use that word, illegals voted, that in in Pennsylvania there were more voters than people in Detroit turnout was like 500 uh, percent just stuff that is completely and terribly divorced from reality uh, and and people believe in them and and this is this is such a huge challenge that I started witnessing covering Trump rallies in in 2015 this sort of divorce and disconnect from reality uh, because you cannot have a political argument if you don't agree on the same set of facts. We can we can debate monetary policy, tax policy, healthcare policy, but if we don't agree on the facts, if you think 500% was the voter turnout in Detroit when it was 50%, I cannot convince you otherwise. That's not a political debate anymore. We just don't agree on the facts. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with our writer and reporter for the Middle East Eye, who was one of the journalists who covered the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we're talking this hour about reactions uh, from people who came to this country to enjoy freedom, to participate in democracy, uh, to the attack on that democracy that we saw on January 6th in Washington, D.C., uh, at the Capitol. Uh, I'm talking right now with Ali Harb. He is a writer and reporter for the Middle East Eye, which is based in Washington, D.C. He was one of the journalists who was covering the riot and the assault on the U.S. Capitol. 
Ari, I want to talk to you just as somebody um, who is an immigrant uh, to mm-hmm. this to this country. You you came here from from Lebanon, which is a, a country that has had no small share of of turmoil and uh, attacks on freedom and uh, democracy. Talk to me just a little bit about what what your reaction was to seeing that kind of activity, that kind of assault in Washington, D.C., in the United States? I, I mean, if, if I were to compare the, the MAGA riots, the MAGA capital riots, to the Lebanon protests that I covered uh, late in 2019, uh, it, like an incredible contrast emerges in the in Lebanon, which is uh, which has a very weak and fragmented state. Uh, the protesters couldn't get within you know half a mile of of the of the Grand Serail, which is which is the headquarters of the prime minister. Uh, there was heavy security presence and this is in an impoverished state uh not not that not that any of the protesters at the time in lebanon was inclined to commit violence or to storm uh government buildings in that matter but there was you just couldn't come near it uh and the fact compare that to the united states which spends 700 billion dollars plus on defense every year uh a few rioters were able to breach the capital and and you know ransack it pretty much. Uh, so so that was one of the contrasts that stood to me. Uh, but overall, the more I think about this, what happened last Wednesday, what happened on the sixth of January, is uniquely American in in many ways. Uh, you cannot compare it to anywhere else in the world because the factors, the elements that led to this moment don't exist anywhere else in the world. There isn't anywhere else in the world that spends such an obscene amount of money on weapons and security. Uh, So the first thing that came to me when I realized the full picture is how could this happen? We live in a securitized society. If if I don't want to see police state, but I, I would think that many civil rights uh, advocates would would put that expression that we live in a police state that you couldn't go over five miles on the highway without being pulled over. That if you're a black man, you could get pulled over and killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. If you want to board a plane, you have to pre-check and take off your shoes and take off your belt and go through a very invasive uh, scanning machine. Uh, but a few people armed with batons and and you know plain plain military were able to breach the headquarter of of our democracy. I mean, th- this is this is. The legislative branch, the House of the People, it was breached with relative ease. And with my own two eyes, I saw people coming in and out. I saw people leave, Mm. take a breather, wash their face, and go back in. So 
this to me is the biggest mystery. How could this happen in the United States? How is it that if you want to go sometimes not even into a government building, into a corporate headquarters, you have to go through metal detectors and take off your shoes and send them your name in advance so they can kind of background check on you uh, in the same country, not only in the same country, in the capital of the country, in the center of power of this country, people were able to breach the capital with in, in such an easy way. Uh, it was like an open-door policy. Come in, go back out, go back in. So that's what stood to me, uh, that the Americanness of, of this mystery. Hmm. Take us back to your memories of Lebanon and the, the, the kind of country it was and, and talk about what led you to, to, to become an American, to, to, to come here to this country. Well, I, I came here through, through the process that Trump calls family, uh, that Trump calls chain migration. We call it family reunification, which is, which is great. I came here as a teenager. I mean, in, in Lebanon, like many countries across the world with limited resources and, and with a corrupt political class, uh, economic prospects are dim. Uh, there is civil unrest often. There is political bickering. And, and the United States is largely seen not only as a place of freedom, but mostly for, for at least for my family. When we came here, we didn't come for the promise of freedom. We came for the promise of opportunity, for the promise of better education. And, and I must say that largely those promises for me personally, it doesn't mean that it works for everyone, were met. I was able to attend Wayne State University on a full-ride scholarship. I I am working as a professional journalist and pursuing my childhood dream. So uh, I, I must say, as, as, as an American, America has been good to me, but I recognize that my personal experience does not negate the experiences of others who have not had it so good, who have not had the same opportunities, who have been victims of the prevailing inequality of the police violence, of, of the many ills that our country still suffers from. Yeah. So I, I wonder how much of that you anticipated coming to America. I mean, uh, you know, most people come to this country, I think, with the idea that uh, it is uh, a land of opportunity and, and equality and that, uh, and that democracy uh, yields a, a kind of fairness that, that you don't find under other systems. Uh, how surprised were you? to see that uh, that we're, we, we fall so far short of that in so many ways? To be honest, I wasn't that much uh, because in, a, in an interconnected world, in a globalized world, sort of had an idea of what America looks like. Uh, when, when I started having personal interactions, for example, I, I'll, I'll go back to maybe 2013, I was working at a local paper in Dearborn, and I was just walking around the neighborhood on my break, and just a cop cuts off the sidewalk with his car, gets out of the car, asks you for my ID, and I'm like, what's going on? Just being aggressive, just terribly aggressive, not telling me what's happening. You know, apparently, at the end, I was told that I looked like a suspect of a break-in. 
I'm, I'm, you know, this is the radio. I'm sort of brown, mm-hmm. curly hair. Mm-hmm. I look like most people in Dearborn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, when I had that experience, it felt a bit like, wow, you know, it, it settled in a little bit. Uh, but, but then we, we live, we live, I grew up in Detroit. I spent most of my adult life in Detroit after coming here as a 15, 16 year old. And, and you see the poverty in, in, in Dearborn, in Detroit, even in, in the immigrant communities, in the white communities, in the black communities. And that sort of was a wake up call, seeing the poverty more than anything else, seeing people struggling to meet their, their financial needs, living paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, I was like most Americans, I was in that bracket once. Uh, so, so I was exposed to it early on. I, it didn't surprise me or shock me as I got to know the system. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Ali Harb. He's a writer and reporter for the Middle East Eye, which is based in Washington, D.C. He covered the violent white supremacist pro-Trump mob at the Capitol on January 6th. I, I also wonder, Ali, if you can talk about lessons you think we might learn from countries like Lebanon, the country that you came here from. I mean, another kind of uh, self-kidding, I think, that goes on in this country is the Mm -hmm. idea that this is the greatest country ever created uh, on the planet and that that we lead and don't follow. But, but of course, um, that's not always true. It's certainly not true across the board. Um, uh, Are there things that, that... Lebanon has figured out about democracy that we could learn from in the United States. Now, I'll tell you things that Lebanon has not done right that <laughs> we're going down that path. Uh, Lebanon has a sort of very divided sectarian system. Uh, the entire political life is, is fraught by division. And a huge issue in Lebanon is that each political party, and there are numerous, about a dozen of them, uh, unlike us, we only have two here, uh, has its own media network. So each each set of supporters get their information from their own outlets, and there's no way for citizens to engage in an informed debate mm. because they're not getting the same information. Uh, they're not being exposed to the same news. Uh, and, and that has, I think, harmed Lebanon and deepened divisions more than anything. And I think we're going down that path. You know, if you're, if you're of a certain uh, political group, you're going to get your news from certain outlets. Mm. And I think one of the deepest the services that that the internet has has done is uh, is radicalized this this sort of selective selective uh, push for seeking information. People news news consumers have become like uh, brand brand loyal consumers. Uh, so so people only go to the sources that tell them what they want to hear. And I've seen effects of that in Lebanon, which is perpetual division, turmoil, chaos, civil unrest, and a country that 
recently, you know, relatively in historic terms, in, in 1990, ended its civil war. It hasn't been able to recover fully. Um, so I think this is this is one of the greatest threats to our republic. Uh, the selective seeking of information and people only go into new sources that tell them what they want to hear. And this is what created the entire MAGA cons- conspiratorial bubble. I mean, if you if you listen to Newsmax and Newsmax tells you that that people voted, that people voted. That's that's what you know. That's what you've been told. And you know, I speak. I speak. I spoke to to Trump supporters uh, during during the riots. Okay, it's so like why 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 do you think why do you think there was election fraud? Oh, it's everywhere. The evidence is everywhere. Well, I haven't seen this evidence because I don't go to the same news sources as them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, because the news sources they go to are malarkey, they're not trusted. So we're sort of living in two different Americas, mm-hmm. uh, and and we're not being divided geographically, even though we are divided geographically. But the deeper divide is a divide of where you get your news. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we don't have to look. That's a really interesting observation because we don't have to look far to see that in other countries, you know, that is the way that uh, that, that populations splinter and end up in, in, in conflict with one another. I mean, it's a it's a it's a pretty stark warning, I think, to us about what what the potential consequences of all of this might look like. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and we saw violence break out. People got killed. Uh, when when we think about what happened at the Capitol, uh, it's it's one thing to think of the consequences, to think of politics, but people got killed. I mean this is this is terrible. People got killed inside of the U.S. Capitol. People got killed inside of our castle of democracy. We've prided ourselves on the peaceful transfer of power since since George Washington handed the keys of the White House to John Adams. And these were very flawed men, by the way. It was not a country, you know, built entirely on freedom and equality, as as some revisionists would like to claim. But at least they had that going on. Yeah. Democracy bet- amongst themselves, amongst the, the white men with properties. And they were able to transfer power peacefully. We don't even have that today. People right. are getting killed during transfer of power. I mean... It's it's a terrible time for our country. As an American, I feel ashamed. I feel sad. Mm. It's it's a regrettable thing that happened. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Ali Harb, uh, writer and reporter for the Middle East Eye. Great to have you as always with us here on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Stephen. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.